Hi everyone and welcome to a very special episode of Illuminal Space. Um, today I'm in discussion with Alan Dean Foster. Alan is an American science fiction and fantasy writer. Um, he's written several book series and more than 20 standalone novels with a special emphasis on environmental and ecological issues. Um, he's written many novelizations of film scripts, including Star Trek, the first three Alien films, Terminator, Transformers, and Star Wars, which he ghostwrote for George Lucas. Alan is also the writer of the first Star Trek film. He's taught screenwriting, literature, and film history, and lectured at universities and conferences around the world. And his work has been translated into more than 50 different languages. Alan has also traveled and explored much of the world, including riding 40-foot whale sharks in the remote waters off Western Australia, whitewater rafting the length of the Batoka Gorge in Zambezi, driving solo the length and breadth of Namibia, swimming with giant otters in Brazil, surveying Papua New Guinea and West Papua, both above and below the water, diving unexplored reefs through the South Pacific and Indian Oceans. He has swum and filmed with great white sharks feeding off South Australia, and he studied karate with Chuck Norris. <laughs> when Alan's not writing or exploring, he spends his time listening to both classical and heavy metal music, hiking, body surfing, and scuba diving. And he just happens to be the current world champion in powerlifting for his age and weight class. So I'm sure you'll agree, Alan is the true Renaissance man. And um, Alan, it's a huge pleasure to, to welcome you to Illuminal Space, and thanks for taking the time to chat. My pleasure. It's nice to be there. How was that uh, summary? Did I did I miss anything? Well, I didn't start writing music until April, so it's probably not in the official bio. <laughs> that that would probably be about the only thing. As far as the powerlifting thing goes, I have you know one world record in one small class and age group for one particular organization. So it's not like I went to the Olympics and won a gold medal. But uh, I'm not walking around with a cane, you know, beating off teenagers either. So I'll, I'll settle for that. Well, it's one more than I, uh, than I have. And it's been a real pleasure um, since recontacting with you in the, in the last few days to spend the last uh, couple of days sort of going over your work online and, and reading a lot about you and listening to a lot of interviews. And um, yeah, really keen to see where this, where this conversation goes. Well, uh, based on what you've done and based on... A little bit that I've done, we'll probably go anywhere with the conversation. Yes. So I thought. Well, but go ahead. No, I thought um, to sort of focus us a little bit. Um, I'll I'll just put a a sentence out there as maybe like a, a theme um, that we can that we can think about on our chat to make sure that we don't go too off uh, off course. And that is moving towards a more conscious and compassionate world. And. I came to that sentence for two reasons. One is that's what I'm trying to do with, with my podcast, basically. Um, but specifically when I was, you know, going over your work in the last few days, that was a theme that, that came out in your work and what I read and also um, in the way that we first got in contact. So um, I don't know if, if this uh, looks familiar to you. Somewhat, yes. That's my only contemporary non-science fiction fantasy novel. When I went to Papua New Guinea the first time, 
I've been several times, not as often as you, but several times. Uh, for extended periods of time, I went with the idea that I often do when I go on my travels that I'm going to get some ideas for a book. Uh, even if it's only characters or background details. And what I do is I store all this away and then I come home and it sits and simmers and percolates. And eventually I, I get a science fiction or fantasy novel out of it. What happened with Primal Shadows is that the things that I saw and the experiences that I had were so fascinating and so out of the realm of normality that instead of writing a, a fantasy story, I wrote a straight contemporary novel and simply incorporated the adventures I'd had and the experiences that I'd had. The interesting thing is, if you read the book, the fantastical stuff is actually real. It's the ordinary, everyday stuff that I had to make up to fill out the novel. Right. So people get that backwards sometimes. It's an amazing country, uh, Papua New Guinea and West Papua as well. And it's just, as they often say, you can't make this stuff up. Mm. But I, I've had that experience in other parts of the world as well as I'm sure you have, but not to the extent I had in Papua New Guinea. And that's why that particular book came out of those particular visits. Yeah, it's um, it's not that usual for me to meet people that have spent time in PNG. Um, and I, those people that I do meet, either in person or like we're doing now, all tend to be pretty interesting people with uh, open minds. And um, it's, a, it, it's a country that touched me deeply um the the first time i traveled there and you know a country on australia's doorstep but we hardly know anything about that particular country you know apart from let's say the the negative stories and things like that coming coming out of it um but the what really touched me so the how i received this book um and i don't even know if if, if you recall but i received in 2011 i'd just come back from papua new guinea um and I'd made a film called Big Bugger Up. And, I, and the film was looking at illegal logging. And I was living in London at that time and I received a random email and I clicked open and it was from yourself. Um, that had, well, I don't know if you'd actually watched the film, but you'd heard of the film. And, and I was like, Alan Dean Foster, and wow, the writer of Star Wars, and, and it was amazing. It really impacted me a lot. Um, and then you, you, you offered to send me a copy of your book, which I have, obviously, and you wrote a tiny note in the, in the, in the front sleeve, which has um, always, it, it made an impact and has always stuck with me. And it's very, very simple. And I thought this was the best way to start our discussion today. For David Fidelli, for trying. All the best, Ellen Dean Foster. What does trying mean to you? And what is your motivation and intent in the work that you do? And what are you trying to do with your work? Well, the first thing I'm trying to do is what Arthur Conan Doyle did when he wrote The Lost World, the original one, obviously. And George Lucas has also used this introductory quote from, from the book. It says, I've done my simple plan if I give one hour of joy to the boy who's half a man or the man is half a boy. Uh, still my favorite novel. And the, you know, the first thing you're trying to do is entertain people and tell a story. I hate preachy books. 
I hate, I hate stuff that comes at you, even with the best of intentions, and says, look, we have a problem in this part of the world. And then they throw a whole bunch of exposition at you. And it's nothing but statistics. And what happens is, unless you are specifically interested in that particular subject and place, people immediately put the book down. And they don't read it. And if they don't read it, you don't get your message across. And I determined very early on, never mind that I always wanted to write science fiction, but I determined very early on that it's better to have a couple of small messages in a book that's read by half a million people than to do a, a book that's entirely message that's read by 10 people in colleges. Uh, I've been aware, and this is very strange for someone growing up in Los Angeles, but I've been aware of the natural world since I was a child. The very first books I ever read were these little golden nature books. I still have them. Uh, one on forests, one on spiders, one on birds, one on flowers. Immediately got me interested in the natural world. And then as I read more and more and discovered science fiction, I found a British writer named Eric Frank Russell, to this day, my favorite science fiction writer. And he was very interested in ecology before the term became into, came into general use. And he wrote several stories on that basis, which shows that everything is interconnected, and not to throw out too many cliches here, but that basically, we're all stuck on a big round spaceship hmm. and everything outside the spaceship is hostile and deadly and will kill you within a couple of minutes. And we've only got the one ship. There isn't another ship parked over in another interstellar garage <laughs> that we can go move to after we screw this one up and we had better take care of this one. So throughout the body of my work, wherever it fit the story, uh, where with the exception of a couple of books like Midworld and or Crystal Tears and others, it was the story. I try to throw in little things that speak to this particular concern. And I feel that in this way, uh, I contribute in some small way to maybe informing people or educating people, particularly young people, that they need to take care of this place because it's the only place they got. And at the moment, we're not doing a real good job of it. I mean, I'm 73 and I've been able to see a good portion of this small planet. And when you travel, you realize how small it really is. You go around the whole thing in 24 hours now. Um, and the way people mistreat it, um, it just makes you feel badly. I don't have any children, so I don't have any grandchildren to worry about. But I worry about other people's grandchildren. And we're not doing a real good job of keeping the ship clean. I think it's incumbent on every age group to clean the ship before they pass on. You need to clean the toilets and scrub the floors and wash down the walls and make sure that everything works. And then you hand it off to your kids and your grandkids. And we're a very immature species, I'm afraid. And we're just not doing a really good job of taking care of the ship. So I try in my own little small ways and in person as well when I speak at conventions and seminars and stuff to point this out to people. Uh, I think people are more aware now, but certainly more aware than they were 50 or 100 years ago of the need to take care of the ship, but that doesn't mean we're doing it. Uh, I just I have a story coming out in the next issue of Analog Magazine, which is 
been around since 1930 and is the premier magazine for science fiction. It's called The Treasure of the Lugar Morto, and it's set in Brazil, and it's basically a near future, I hope far future, but near future, story about Brazilian ecology. Uh, and so, you know, you can do that sort of thing, but it has to be a good story or nobody will pay attention to the message. So is your, is your, um, does your, do, does the message come first and then the world and then the story and then the, the characters or how, or is it different in different cases or sort of what are the genesis of your projects? Well, some books and some stories, like Morto, for example, are overtly ecologically oriented. The book I did called Midworld, which is set on a world where there are, the forest is half a kilometer high, covers the entire planet. It's basically a one world rainforest, except for the oceans. And there are seven different levels and each different level has its own group of plants and predators and interconnections. Uh, and some people say a certain movie drew from this, but I can't speak to that. But everything I designed as well as I could, it's an earlier book of mine, but I made sure that, you know, you look for examples of things that you can tie into the story. Uh, for example, if you have a forest where the trees are half a kilometer high or a kilometer high, how do they get nitrogen out of the soil? If soil is way down there. So you have to invent something. This is what good science fiction does. Uh, in a good science fiction story, the world will feel real because all of the details have been well thought out. But the story always has to come first. I didn't think when I was writing Midworld, I'm going to write a story about uh, the exploitation of the rainforest. I'm going to set it on another world. I didn't start that way. I started with the characters. Because if your characters aren't interesting, the rest of the story, no matter how detailed your background, uh, nobody cares. I mean, if people watch Star Wars or watched Star Wars in the beginning, because they were interested to see what happened to Luke and Leia and Han Solo and Chewbacca and, yes, Darth Vader. The rest of the stuff was just background. It's like painting an ocean scene with people in the foreground in a small boat. The first thing you think about is what's going to happen to those people in that boat? You don't think about the clouds. You don't think about the ocean or the rocks. Uh, it's what's going to happen to people. So you have to start with your characters. And then everything revolves around them, at least when you're doing a book of fiction. When I'm doing something like uh, Predators I Have Known, which is just a book I did of encounters I've had with interesting animals around the world, uh, then it's all about me putting my foot in deep holes and things when I shouldn't. Uh, <laughs> Nonfiction is completely different. Uh, it's a completely different approach. And but but you always have this um, message as well that you want to get across. That that seems to be the consistent thread in in your work. Even even in books where, unlike Midworld and our Crystal Tears, but other books, it's all about the interconnectedness of everything, and this being science fiction a lot of the time, not just on this planet but on other worlds as well. If you're developing an alien society, for example, a group of intelligent aliens, that alien world has to work as well as everything works on this planet. And too many times science fiction, bad science fiction, just throws that in there. And it assumes that there's no ecology on the alien world. You know, all the people speak the same language. They all look the same. They all talk the same. 
And every place you go on this world is exactly the same. Well, that's not the way planets work. It's not the way our world works. It's not the way Mars works. These are things you have to think out before you start the story. I remember reading about somebody who had developed, the story was they were sailing on Titan where the seas are methane and the atmosphere is a combination of other unpleasant gases. And without thinking, he lights a match <laughs> and everything goes bluey. And you have to think these things out ahead of time. So I try to do that in all my stories and in my life as well. If I meet people, sometimes I can get involved personally. Um, I contribute to various causes like I'm sure you do, but I don't have, you know, Bill Gates resources. And I just can't do it. If I did, I would contribute more. There was a group, was an organization, I'm sure it's still around, called uh, uh, Society for the Preservation of the Southern Rainforest. This was specifically designed to contribute money to Manu National Park in southern Peru, which is a spectacular place. Goes from the crest of the Andes down into lowland rainforest. Still, even though the Trans-Amazonian Road has been completed, that's something I would go tear up if I had the wherewithal to do. But the park is still pretty pristine, even as regards loggers and illegal artis artisanal gold miners. But the rangers didn't have money to buy radios back then. This is pre-cell phone era. And they didn't have enough money to buy gas for their outboard motors, for their boats. And so this organization was fine, was founded. And that's where people can really help. You don't think, you think, well, I'm gonna give so much money and they're gonna buy a 64th of a hectare and quote unquote, preserve it. You don't, you don't preserve stuff if you don't have, if you don't pay for the means to preserve it. It's wonderful that organizations like the Nature Conservancy and World Wildlife for Nature do this. But if you don't involve people on the ground, not just rangers and officials, but the local people, there's no way that you're going to keep the bad guys out. I can go on about that for an hour or two. There's a park in Brazil, about halfway between Manaus and the Peruvian border, called Namirawa. And it's where a major tributary of the Amazon meets the Amazon. And in the rainy season, you get this uh, varzea, flooded forest, and the water level comes up uh, 30 meters and you have pink dolphins swimming among the trees. It's a fascinating place. So the, Peru, the Brazilian government made it into a national park, but there are people living in the national park. So what they did was they made the people there participants and the people get a percentage of the tourist dollars. There aren't a lot yet because Memorial was kind of out of the way for most folks, but they become the rangers. When they're out doing their legal fishing and their legal gathering, I actually saw local people arrest a couple of people who were poaching Cayman as we were going by in our boat. Then suddenly it becomes a preservation project that's worth that, that can work. Just like in Africa where the Maasai get paid for not killing lions and for turning in poachers. If you don't involve the local people, and I think this is one of the problems in Papua New Guinea, even though on paper the local people are involved. I mean, you know more about this than I do, that they have. If you don't involve the local people, 
There's no way you can stop poaching and keep the forest from being burned down and keep all the animals from being killed for bushmeat. It's a fascinating thing because I think we both, you and I, in some way, both come from the same intent, for want of a better sure. word. Um, but what I'm, what I'm finding extremely curious is we come from the same intent, but then we go about things in, in a very different way. You know, I'm a documentary filmmaker and I'm, I'm filming a reality as it happens, um, which just speaking to you now, I, you know, I don't think I've got even, you, you seem to have more imagination in your little finger than I have in my entire body put together. You know, you're able to take these situations, these stories and, and, and manufacture worlds and characters and, and stories to, um, to, to make them engaging because in, at the end of the day, I think that's what we all, like if we want our, if we have a message or we have some intent and we need to touch people, we need to find ways to, to do exactly that actually, to, to touch people. Um, and is it a fair, uh, not, not saying this in a negative way, but are you trying to sort of spread messages by, by stealth in a way? Are you trying to like uh, share your messages, but, but, but do it in a subliminal way so people aren't even realizing that they're, they're reading a story with a message? Absolutely. It's like when you take your kid to the doctor for vaccination and the nurse stands off to one side and waves a toy balloon to distract the kid. And meanwhile, the doctor goes pink and the kid gets the injection. <laughs> and if it's done well, the kid doesn't even realize they've gotten the injection. That's what I try to do. You don't have the nurse standing over there with the balloon. You have to stand there and hold up the needle and show it to the kid and say, this is going to make you feel better. This is going to make the bad feelings go away. But in order to do that, you have to give me a minute here so that I can put this stuff in you. And it's good that you do that. And it's good that I do what I do. Because if we all did exactly the same thing, we wouldn't cover as wide a spread of potential recipients. I used to teach documentary film, by the way, at LA City College. Right. I didn't, I didn't realize that. And, and so would that be, are you, are you really strong in just storytelling in general, in the sense that, you know, whether it be documentary or if it's through fantasy or fiction, um, are these all, you know, even I know your love of music and so forth. Do you consider yourself first and foremost a storyteller that can work oh, across yeah. different mediums? Yeah, I'm the kind of guy who's 8,000, not 8,000, I gotta go back for the 20,000 years ago was walking across Africa and would stop by a campfire and tell stories around the campfire to the local people for my evening meal. That, that's who I am. Uh, but while I'm telling that story, if I can point out that maybe you guys shouldn't defecate by the water hole right over here at my camp, go build a, you know, uh, go do it over here instead because it's better for you. Uh, but I would leave that into a story. I wouldn't just say that to the group of people around. What I would do is say uh, something like, uh, well, there was this saber-toothed tiger. And I was with this other tribe. We have a real problem with the saber-toothed tiger. And the tiger was outside the cave every night waiting for some of us to come out. So we had to do this, this, and this to distract the tiger. So some of us could get out and catch food and go to the bathroom outside the cave. But I wouldn't say, see how that worked? Absolutely. Uh, and that's, that's, that's what I do. You can do that 
I'm sorry, Star Wars doesn't do any of that. You have, I love movies, but I don't like the movie business. That's why I write primarily books. But you can't just throw something like that in an audience in a film, which will have a much bigger audience than your book, because they will immediately see what's going on. People are too sophisticated now. So it, it has to come as part of the story. And in a film, it's harder to do than in a book. Hmm. But and be done. And I'm sorry that more science fiction films, most of which are pretty bad, but some of which are good, don't do that. Uh, there was a recent film, oddly enough, the two, the two most recent science fiction films that I've managed to see are both based on stories by science fiction writers. What a surprise. And they turned out to make good science fiction films. One was Arrival, directed by uh, Dennis Villeneuve, who's directing the remake of Dune speaking of ecological science fiction. And another one was called Annihilation, based on a novel by Jeff Vandermeer. Annihilation is about, a, is about evolution. It's entirely about evolution. But it doesn't set out to tell a story about evolution. It sets out to tell an adventure story about a mysterious place that people go into and never come back. But in the course of seeing that film, uh, and through some minor dialogue by the characters, we discover that it's actually a film about, about what can happen if evolution goes amok. The film does a very good job of delivering that message without preaching it. I wish more science fiction films did that. And obviously, the because as I hear you talking, I'm I'm also thinking about my own work and the limitations of documentary filmmaking, to be honest, because... Um, one of the big limitations is that, or you have this dilemma sometimes of how specific or how general you are in the sense that, let's use this film that I made in Papua New Guinea. The question to ask yourself when you're making these sorts of projects are if you keep it specific and you use statistics and you use details of the, of the location, then it becomes a film which is about a particular place in a particular time about a particular set of people, as opposed to a general story that can be, you know, watched and, and understood by people all around the world, and, and you can you can get the same message um, from a story. And so that's what I'm I'm trying to do with my own work as well, is to to tell kind of specific stories, but have a um, sort of a generalization to them so that they can be interpreted much like your work, that you could be reading it anywhere around the globe and actually understand that there's, um, it's touching you, it's relevant to you in some way, even if that location is on the other side of the, the planet. Um, you have a different fiscal problem than I have. I have an unlimited budget when I write a book. I can go anywhere, as often as I want, you know, under any conditions, and all it costs me is a little typing time. If you want to do story on what happens to those logs that are cut down illegally in New Guinea and track them all the way to where they go, that's an expensive project. Uh, I also have a safer situation than you do. Nobody's going to find me and shoot me because I'm sticking in a line about cutting down wood illegally or fishing illegally, let's say someplace in Gabon. Whereas if I take a boat out among the uh, dozens of Chinese fishing boats that are fishing right offshore in Gabon, 
because nobody cares about Gabon, because nobody knows where Gabon is, except, of course, the Gabonese, then if I go over there in that little boat, there might be somebody on one of those Chinese fishing boats, and I know they're Chinese fishing boats, because I wave to the guys and they talk back to me. Uh, I might find myself at the bottom of the ocean tied to an old anchor. Yeah. Very, very different sorts of situations, but we try to convey our messages in, in different ways, but it's the same message. Yeah. That's what's critical. That's what's critical. If people don't, if people say, well, you're an alarmist. I'm sure you've heard this your entire career. You're an alarmist. Like, what, what does it matter if somebody cuts down a few trees, a few more trees in the Amazon or Gabon or Papua New Guinea? People know about the Amazon now. They don't know about all these other places. Mm. They don't know about what's happening in Borneo, which is being turned basically into one large ivory plantation. Um, but if you don't tell people, you know, they never hear about them. And you have to be careful, too. You hit people over the head too many times with the same message, something I'm very careful about in my books. Then they get desensitized. Yeah. And that's even worse. That's even worse than being ignorant. Because <laughs> if you're ignorant, if somebody's ignorant, you can educate them. If they're desensitized, you can't educate them because they won't listen. Yeah. I think about the I think about the ignorance a lot, but I, I don't think so much about the, you know, people becoming sensitized to to issues. And and you're one hundred percent right. Particularly, I think we're in this world where, also with social media, we're sort of inundated with causes and inundated with sort of you know, um, save the dolphins in the morning and save the trees in the afternoon and click here and. And it becomes more, you know, like slacktivism and clicktivism than, than any, anything sort of meaningful and sort of an over... I think a lot of people really would love to become much more engaged with issues in the world, but, uh, you know, it can be difficult to know which, which fight to, to, to follow, let's say. Um, it's sad. We're, we're more connected than we've ever been. Yeah. And yet at the same time, people paying little more attention than they used to when they weren't connected because there is so much other noise out there. Yeah. Social media. It's like, it's the, I don't have the problem you have because if I write an, an entertaining action filled science fiction novel, that's what people read it for. If I throw my little messages in there here and there as subtly as I can, it's easy for, for me, for you, um, your film is the message. And it's tough to, uh, a good example, we've all been reading, at least those of us in, who are interested in such things, been reading about the poor Thai fishermen who are kept captive on fishing boats in uh, the South China Sea and in Indonesian places like that. And they never get off the boat and they never get their money. And it's all being done, all the fishing's being done illegally. It'd be very interesting for somebody to make a film, a commercial film, about some poor young guy who accepts one of these very promising jobs and follow him just as a person. And incidentally to his story, you know, it could be very action-filled in a bad way, show what happens to him. Yeah. And as a consequence of following him, we see all this other bad stuff. Yeah. And there are films, their films can be done like this. Uh, Free Willy, to take a kid's example, that's not a film about how we should treat uh, ocean, ocean mammals. It's a film about a bunch of kids. 
And yeah, you get interested in Willie and all of that and everybody cheers at the end. But if the characters aren't interesting, it doesn't work. This is, you know, what you're saying here is absolutely the, the key. And, and it's, it, I mean, I'm not sure. I've only been making films for about 10 years, actually. I've done a whole lot of other things in my life. This is something that I'm learning about and I'm gaining so much from this. And um, it's very true, even in my filmmaking, um, perhaps I was a bit clumsy in my first couple of films, trying to sort of focus too much on the issue rather than tell a story. And as you say, bring people along with the story and then bring the, introduce the issue as you go. I'll just share a small story, um, not about a film or a book, but it's about West Papua which um, is also a cause that I'm very um, passionate about. Um, and I know that, that you've explored this part of the world as well. And some years ago I was in Melbourne and there was, and so for people that, that don't know, and I would imagine that's actually, and sadly, most people, because it's, a, it's an issue that hardly anybody actually knows about, but West Papua, the half of the island, the, the west half of the island of New Guinea has been under, um, is, is under Indonesian um, occupation. And West Papua trying to 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 get their their independence. And a few years ago, I was at a West Papua demonstration in Melbourne, and I, I watched for one hour where they had a microphone and they were telling stories and speeches. And you know, pretty much nobody stopped. Like they couldn't get an audience. They had flyers, and no one was asking to take the flyer. And then about an hour into it, the music started playing. And a group of young West Papuans came out and they were dressed in their clothes and they were playing their music and they were singing their songs. And instantly, people were crossing the street. The same people who were walking past for an hour, you know, just not even giving any attention, were now asking, who are these people? What's happening? Who's the flyer? Take this. And it was extraordinary. And it was sort of that sort of, message by stealth in a way you know who doesn't like music who, how can you not have empathy how can you not have compassion for it's much easier once you see that that people are people and we're connected through music we're connected through song we're connected through dance rather than just standing you know um, with a microphone and and speaking to nobody in the end right i had a letter from a guy in amsterdam many years ago who had an older gentleman who had been in West Papua when they had the uh, referendum. Yeah, act of free choice uh, at gunpoint. Yes, yes, well, it's it very much like what happened in the American West with the Native Americans where uh, the representatives of the Europeans would come in and they would give the, the local chief or chiefs some beads and blankets and guns, and then they would sign the treaty with them, while the other 500 people who were in the tribe had nothing to say about it. Mm. And West Pap was that situation, as you well know, all over again. This gentleman had been there in West Papua during the referendum, saw exactly what was going on, uh, but has been fearful to speak about it. That's why he lives in the Netherlands ever since, because he is afraid for his life, because he knows exactly what happened and how it happened. Uh, for those of you who don't know, we're talking about an essentially stolen election. West Papua supposedly had a referendum to decide whether to become part of Indonesia or stay independent or join with Papua New Guinea, if I get it all right. Uh, and it was essentially a bought and paid for election. 
US government and Western European governments did not get involved because Indonesia at that time was considered an anti-communist state. They didn't want to rock the boat. That's the short version. Uh, the important thing is that people who live in West Papua are basically Papuans. And they should either be an independent country or more rationally merge to become part of the whole island of New Guinea should be all one government. But uh, uh, it's not going to happen because West Papua, like all of the island of New Guinea, is full of natural resources that yeah. can be exploited. And the Indonesian government has been sending in as many immigrants as they could pay, persuade <clears throat> to try and change the population balance, just like China is doing with Xinjiang and Tibet, moving Han Chinese into those areas to try and change the population balance. Uh, this is what exploited governments do. Yeah. And the problem is that people who are going about their business generally in London or Rome or New York not only don't care about this, but they don't even know where these places are. And that's part of the problem with trying to get people to react and do something. And if I can throw some mention about New Guinea into one of my science fiction books, uh, or some other situation involving ecology or uh, cultural problems, then that's why I try to do it. Because a lot of the people who read that book, and science fiction fans tend to be very well informed. Uh, it's not all about ray guns and spaceships. Then maybe I can open some eyes and maybe somebody look this up and maybe somebody will send a few dollars to a worthy cause. But that's all you can do if you're one person. Unless you're Bill Gates, hmm. trying to eliminate malaria, that sort of thing. But it's very difficult to do. The, the governments, again, as you well know, who are involved, like being out of the line of, of sight so that they can do these things uh, without being observed. Yeah. I don't understand it. I don't understand it. From the time I was a small child, I never understood this business of cultural differences or racial differences. It's, I think some of that comes from reading science fiction. So much science fiction treats the earth as one place. It's us versus the aliens. Hmm. Us going out into space. You'll notice if you watch Star Trek, it's United Starfleet Command. It's not the US Navy. It's not the Chinese Air Force. You have basically some kind of one world government, which we're going to have to have one of these days. It, it's ridiculous to have uh, 183 different captains on the same ship. Uh, that's the only, you know, from that time, you realize that you're basically dealing with uh, one species, at least as far as we know, and, and everybody is the same, and everybody has the same problems, and we have all of this primitive tribal nonsense going on, where one tribe, you know, is, this is, I'm, more powerful than the other tribes, so you do this. We're coming out of that a little bit at a time. It's not as bad as, say, the, the 19th century, much less past that. But it's going very slowly. It's going very, very slowly. And that somehow we have to accelerate, we have to accelerate the pace of cultural change and understanding. So that, for example, people in Dallas, Texas, or Sydney, or Perth, realize that it's a bad thing 
if they buy a desk from some company in a, in a store, and that desk is made out of wood that's been Ill illegally cut in Peru or Cameroon or any place else, it's a difficult message to get across. I know you try and I try, and that's all you can do is try. All we can do is try, and all we can do is try to, in that regard, minimize, like show the, 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 the similarities between people, like to show that there is an us, to show that us yeah. exists. And, and um, in my lifetime, <laughs> I can unfortunately say, especially in the last decade, that us is becoming less and less Division. I, I see division. I don't see us to be to be pessimistic, but to be honest, um, and I'm, I, I, I hope I don't want to focus a, a discussion on on COVID at all. But maybe we can throw this sort of in a little bit later about you know the the current world that we live in right now. But my country, Australia, right now, for the first time ever, not only are we um, uh, cut off from the rest of the world, but my state, Victoria is actually now cut off from the rest of Australia. And I don't even feel an us to Australia right now. Like there's even divisions that I've never felt in my lifetime within my own country. Um, and I know it's extreme times and it's, you know, it's, it's a pandemic, but I, 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 I so much hope that this, this us can manifest post COVID, whatever, you know, whatever, whatever that world is, is going to well, look like. Sometimes it takes a disaster to bring people closer together. Yeah. On the one hand, you try to be optimistic, and then, then something like politicization, I'm sorry, talking too fast for myself, uh, the politics of a vaccine. You know, whoever develops a vaccine first, bravo. I don't care if it's the Russians, the Chinese, some petty dictator in Africa. It's a good thing. But the idea that somebody should make political hay out of this and say, hey, we did it first, yeah. is nonsense, is nonsense. This is something that affects all of humanity, and all of humanity should cheer for whatever the result is. But because of the way our world is, that's probably, unfortunately, not going to happen. So we really need somehow to start thinking of ourselves more as human beings and less as Americans or Australians or Chinese. Yeah. And we can argue about, you know, government forms of government or religion or whatever. But we have to start thinking our, of ourselves more as a species than as tribes. And, and, and why is it that you think in this way? Are you, come, you come from a lineage of, of, of thinkers and storytellers and, 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 and compassionate people. Oh, Jen, you know, what, what, was it something that was taught to you from an early age or did you just find yourself just instantly feeling at one with, with, with the earth and with the people around you? Or I don't know, what was your upbringing like? Uh, I'm kind of uh, an anomaly in my family. All of my family was in the dress business. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there were no writers, there were no composers, there were no artists. And I just sort of popped out of nowhere. And I think it's because we used to go up into the Sierra Nevada mountains once a year. It was my father's only week's vacation for decades. And 
I remember I had read those little books about forests and birds and trees and flowers at a very young age. And everybody else went fishing. And I went walking and absorbed the natural world around me and saw how things worked. And when I would get back to our cabin, it's a very tiny old style resort up in the mountains. Everybody else was talking about the fish they caught. And all I wanted to talk about was a, a flower I had seen or a bug that I had seen. I don't know what sparks these things, but it was always there from as far back as I can remember. And then the idea of turning the stories, I was supposed to be a solicitor, a lawyer, and I discovered that I could tell stories. And lo and behold, people would pay me for reading my stories. And so I was able to basically uh, talk about the same things I was talking about as a child, only on a galactic scale. Hmm. But where it came from, I haven't the slightest notion. If I knew, I would bottle it and sell it. Yeah. It's uh, a... Sometimes these things, sometimes these things just happen. I am so glad they did and that I didn't become a lawyer. We have a surplus of lawyers. Um, and then I became a writer, but you know, and sometimes I would feel guilty because I knew people who desperately wanted to be writers. And I never desperately wanted to be a writer. What I wanted to do was travel and do some more of that walking and see some more birds and bugs and flowers. And I ended up being the one who became the writer. It, life works in mysterious ways. Yeah. Again, none of this is going to affect me. I'm not going to be around for another 20 years. But I do worry about what comes after. Is there a particular... You mentioned New Guinea. You've mentioned the jungle in Brazil, in Peru. What is it about wild places that, that attracts you? It's the closest you can come to being on a different planet. I can't go to other planets. I can in my imagination, but not in reality. But I would like to. I would like to. And the closest I can come to doing that is to go to these places that are still, and there are still a few of them left, that haven't been completely taken over by human civilization. And they look the way they have for thousands of years. And to me, that's as close as I can come, that and diving, to being on another world. Hmm. And as long as I can do that, as often as I can do that, uh, I, I will do so. I will do so. It's, camping in a rainforest, in a tent, can be a very unpleasant physical experience. And my rule for going through um, rainforest is you automatically assume that everything you encounter can either bite or stink. But I am so fascinated even by something that bites me or stings me. Yeah. I mean, the first time you have a leech on you, uh, you're immediately, you know, there's a little bit of revulsion there. And then you're just fascinated, or at least I'm just fascinated by how the damn thing works. It's a fascinating piece of organic engineering. And uh, if I have to sacrifice a little blood, we're talking, about one, <laughs> we're talking about one leech now, to see the thing and see how it works, that's something I can add to my catalog of knowledge and maybe I can use in a story somewhere down the line. Uh, but 
you know, every time you see a living creature, whether it's a tree or a bug or a fish or anything that you haven't seen before, it's like a new flavor of ice cream to me. Yeah. It's like, oh boy, I haven't tasted that before. You're obviously a very, very, very curious person. I mean, all, all, all of this is about exploration, um, curiosity, trying to understand how things work. How things work, yes. That's, that's what people need to understand. I always thought that part of the problem is that the people who are elected to political office or appointed to political office don't understand how things work. It's one thing to read about in your little piece of congressional briefing in the morning uh, that there's a problem with illegal logging in, uh, well, let's say the bushmeat trade in the Congo. Uh, but it's another thing to go there and be there and be around the people and talk to the people and ask them why they're doing this and get answers like, well, we've always done it. You know, or the forest is full of animals. What's the problem? It's like with the ivory palm in Southeast Asia. It's a wonderful plant. I think you get three or four harvests a year. People make a lot of money, but the people making the money are not the people who live there. Mm. They're the companies that own the ivory palm plantations. And it, it's difficult. You have to you have to strike if you want to counteract these things. You have to strike at every part of the beast. The companies that sell the stuff, the people on the ground who sign away their logging rights for a pittance, uh, and at the same time, local people have to have enough to eat. It's, I think that's one of the things I mentioned. My marijuana in Brazil earlier. One of the things would make a huge difference. If people in, in New Guinea and in Borneo had some kind of a stipend uh, where they had enough, where they had some money, enough money to survive in, then it would be a lot easier to convince them not to allow somebody to come in and cut down the forest. It, it inevitably devolves to a question of money. It's all about money. It's not about the environment. It's not about the local people. It's all about a few people making a lot of money. Uh, very sad. Very yeah. sad. If I had one wish right now, uh, two wishes, I'm getting greedy. Uh, I would do something to stop illegal fishing completely before we really have a collapse in the oceans. And I would have every oil pipeline in the Amazon torn up and thrown away. But I don't have that kind of power. Even Bill Gates doesn't have that kind of power. But there are places you just shouldn't do that. As to be optimistic about it for a minute, we're really starting to see seriously uh, different countries, developed countries and underdeveloped countries take seriously the prospect of switching to solar and wind power for the generation of electricity. electricity. Uh, that will do more, provided it's economically viable, do more to stop the exploitation of a lot of these places than any amount of stories or films or anything else you and I could do. Because again, it's about money. It's about money. There's a question then that I, I was having a chat with somebody today and um, I said, I, I need to ask Alan this question. And, and this is taking a, a, a detour. Um, I know a lot of your work talks about, and what we've been talking about now, um, these themes of good and bad 
do you believe that people are evil? Like, do you believe that there are uh, evil people and bad people? Or do you believe that there are just people that have bad ideas and bad ideologies and bad, um, you know, have been brainwashed or, or you know, the, the people that are doing these, these really terrible things to the rainforest? How, how is it that, that this is allowed to happen? It's a good question. Um, I, people are generally born confused, I think. And as you grow and mature, you sort things out. And depending on your immediate environment and what you discover, you either end up doing good things or bad things. And there are people who do plenty of bad things. There's a book just out by Donald Trump's uh, niece, who is a qualified clinical psychologist who tries to explain him, and it's basically his part of his upbringing. But yet his other brothers did not become what Donald Trump came. Uh, so the question becomes, is Donald Trump evil, or is he just confused you know, because he's entirely a product of his upbringing? I don't know that you can separate things into black and white that easily. Um, I always wonder, you think back to these things, Hitler was a painter. And I've seen a, a, a number of his watercolors, and they're certainly not groundbreaking, but they're perfectly competent art. And I'm thinking what, you know, history turns on very small things. People turn on very small things. What if some famous Jewish art critic had come in and praised his paintings to the sky? Would the entire history of the 20th century been different? Oh, um, we, we don't know. The, this is a very, very... Hitler would have become... Very interesting thing that you've posed right now. Was was he born evil or did he become evil because of things that happened to him in World War One, and with his painting? And people as adults, uh, you know, you're formed in childhood, they say. And people as adults, so many of the things that as adults harken back to or are consequence of things that happened to them as a child. And that's why I think childhood education is so important. Uh, I think if we could educate all of our children, uh, both in the developed and undeveloped world, with an eye towards explaining to them how things work and why it is important not to do certain things, even though at that moment it may seem like a good thing, I think we would solve a lot of these problems with these people later on in life. If children in Papua New Guinea, for example, if the school system was a bit better and they had good teachers who said, you must not cut down the rainforest, even though somebody offers you money for the trees, because this will be important to you in the future because of uh, the air that you breathe and the things that you eat and the people who come to see these things. I think that would solve, I think that would be the best way to solve these problems. And again, it becomes a matter of money. Yeah. If you don't, if you don't start with the population when they're young, uh, I mean, how many Maasai children who have benefited from sharing in tourist dollars in Kenya will not grow up wanting to kill lions, even if they take an occasional cow, because they were educated in youth that this is a bad thing because. Now, I don't know that that's happening, but if it was happening, solve a lot of the problems with, you know, uh, destruction of the environment in Kenya. The other thing is we have to get our population under control. Yeah. And that's actually a simple thing. 
And if you're going to double the population of the planet, say every 10, 20 years, then none of this other stuff's going to matter. Yeah. Because people need, people need to eat. Based on my travels around the world, man who is hungry today doesn't care about the economy tomorrow. Uh, if people don't have enough to eat, uh, they don't care about anything. Else. They don't care about religion. They don't care about politics. If the people running the government are democratic or despotic or a king, they don't care. If they have enough to eat, then everything flows from that. Hmm. So that's another problem that has to be solved is the problem of basically food. And, and no, go ahead. No, I mean, to do with, with overpopulation, I mean, it brings us to, to 2020 and it brings us to COVID-19. Is this like a crazy science fiction film, what, what we're living at the moment? Well, there have been a number of science fiction novels written about pandemics, worldwide pandemics. Um, all you have to do is Google science fiction pandemic and you'll pull up a whole slew of them. That's one thing that science fiction does well. It's we're not really trying to predict the future. We're trying to tell stories. But if you write a hundred books and one of them happens to get it right, then everybody thinks science fiction can predict the future. So we, we really don't try to do that, but occasionally something hits. Uh, there's a story called A Logic Named Joe, written by a man named Mary Leinster which appeared in Astounding Science Fiction magazine in 1946 and completely predicts the internet and the home computer. I mean, he's just trying to tell a story. He's exploring a little idea. But this is 1946. There are no home computers. The internet is an entirely science fictional thought. And yet the story hits it pretty well. So science fiction can do that. It's done that with pandemics. But actually the pandemic had a fairly straightforward origin uh, depending on which conspiracy theory you forgot to believe and it, it comes from jumping from animals from people eating wild game uh, same thing from ebola uh, if we could stop the bushmeat trade which would be a wonderful thing anyway we probably re greatly reduce the chance of having having anything like covid19 or sars to or Ebola in the future. Uh, you can see that happening in certain parts of the world. There's no reason it should happen in a country as developed as China. And for that, I blame the Chinese government. I mean, this whole business of, well, it's a cultural tradition kind of stuff, so we can't stop it. That's a terrible political excuse. Slavery used to be a cultural tradition. And we put a complete stop, mostly complete stop to that. Uh, there's no reason why the Chinese government could simply say, Look, no more bushmeat, even though they don't call it that in China. In other words, COVID-19 should never have happened and was completely preventable. And how do you see it playing out? How, how does this uh, science fiction story, this particular uh -huh. science fiction story end? Yeah, I wish it was science fiction. Uh, there will be a good vaccine developed or several good vaccines because we're better at that now. Uh, imagine if this had happened, well, there wouldn't have been a much spread because there weren't as many people in the 19th century. But we're getting better at that. Uh, and I just told people don't use it as an excuse because the vaccine, based on what the doctors and the scientists say, will be here fairly shortly. And it should work, or several of them should work. And I hope that people don't forget. They don't say, okay, we took care of that problem, it's gone. 
and people go on eating bush meat in various countries, and lo and behold, something new will pop up. Mm. Now, the biologists and the doctors understand that this can happen, probably will happen if people keep doing this, but the general population doesn't care. It's like, I got my vaccine, I'm good. And they don't worry about the next pandemic. Oh, I'm worried about this pandemic. I'm not thinking about the next one. Yeah. I have, I have basically no immune system for various medical reasons. So I'm far more at risk than most people. But, you know, people say, how do you handle the social distancing? I say, well, I've been social distancing for years. I'm a right. I sit at home and I work. But uh, very careful when I go out which I have to do to do shopping and such. Yeah. And if you take a few simple preventative measures, the chances are you're not going to get it. It boggles the mind that in a country as developed as the United States, and now we're seeing big protests in Germany of all places, that people will not wear masks, social distance, and stay at home where possible. Some, some commentators said, look, it's not medical doctors said, we're not asking you to storm the beaches of Normandy on, at Omaha Beach on D-Day. Just asking you to wear a mask and keep a little distance. And if people won't even do that, I mean, lots of times I despair of the species. I really do. But, you know, sometimes we can learn things. If you go back and watch television commercials from the 1950s, you'll see doctors smoking, talking about how wonderful their Chesterfields or Lucky Strikes were. And that wasn't all that long ago. Yeah. But the, the, one of the key things with science fiction is people don't realize how quickly things change. So I'll, when I'm doing a, a, a teaching seminar and people say, well, what's life going to be like in uh, 2220? And I'll say, well, take a look at what life was like in 1820 and try to imagine explaining today's world to people in 1820. You know, if you held up your cell phone, there's no way you could explain it scientifically. It would be magic. As Arthur C. Clarke once said, anything sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic. Mm -hmm. You couldn't explain it. You'd have a hard time explaining electricity. Yeah. Similarly, in 2220, you know, people will look back in primitive uh, 2020 and wonder why people did this or did that. And I hope they'll look back and say, well, some of them did something to save the environment. Otherwise, we'd be in a real mess. Yeah. But I'm hopeful, but not optimistic. Well, you are personally doing more than your bit to, to contribute to, uh, to this. That's very nice of you to say, but it's a difficult question to answer truthfully. Yeah. I reach a lot more people in my books than I ever could if I was on the ground in some place like Manu, for example, doing research and shooting the occasional poacher. Uh, it's difficult to say which is more effective. All I know is that I can reach a lot more people writing than I can working out of a tent in, in the Amazon. Yeah. Much as I would like to be there. But I think, you know, um, like quite often I'm asked at a, at a film screening, what can I do? you know, what, what can I contribute? How can, and my answer, which I'm really strong on, it's not just me, you know, saying words to appease somebody. I really truly believe it, which is we all have to look inside to what we can do. 
someone is going to be more comfortable on the ground, someone is going to be more comfortable writing a, a book, someone is going to be more comfortable making a film, someone is, can be a lawyer defending the people that are in this situation, someone can be, you know, uh, medically assisting people that require it. And, and I think that the, 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 the worst thing is where you believe that you can do nothing and you do nothing, or you believe that your part is not going to make any difference, let's say. And, you know, I can guarantee if there were, if we could clone you and, 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 and get your mind into other people, that, that this world would be a, uh, you know, a far better place. Is there something in particular that you would like, what would you like your, what would you like to be remembered for, let's say? What, what's your over, what would you love your overriding contribution to, to this world to be? He entertained a lot of people and took their minds off what was going on in the world around them. And in the course of so doing, maybe educated a few. Pretty good. And I have my, I have my tombstone, although I don't expect a normal grave. I have my tombstone written out. I know exactly what I wanted to say. Say, Earth, been there, done that. <laughs> How good is that as a concluding sort of statement to, to what we've been talking about? You know, no, you're, absolute, you're absolutely right, David. It's, the critical thing is for people not to do nothing. Mm. Um, People say that polio was cured because of a program called the March of Dimes in the United States, where school children, they got these little things you could put dimes in, like coin collecting things, and collected dimes from school children and people all over the country. And that money went to polio research, and lo and behold, they found a cure for polio. If there was some kind of a worldwide thing like that, because there's so many diverse good organizations for dealing with the environment, um, I think that would be a good thing, but there isn't. So all we can do is contribute what we can to worthwhile organizations to help preserve what's left and protect what's left and maybe expand it a little bit. It is possible to actually bring some things back that have been damaged. Now, the critical point right now, although there are people would say, well, there are many critical points, but the really critical point right now is the Amazon rainforest in Brazil. Not that it's not being damaged in, um, in Bolivia. They're doing a decent job, although they could do better in Peru. Same thing for Ecuador. Colombia doesn't have much. Venezuela is such a mess that, you know, they can't do anything. Their problem there is artisanal gold mining. But the real problem is Brazilian rainforest right now because that's being destroyed at such a rate that, uh, well, you can see it from satellites. And that's really up to the Brazilian people. They need to vote in the government that, uh, that puts in sustainable forestry practices. And once again, it comes down to money. You have people who grow soy and raise cattle, who throw a lot of money around. And are these people evil to go back to one of your earlier questions? I don't think they're evil necessarily but they do evil things. And I don't mind there being evil people around as long as we can stop them from doing evil things. Yeah. I, I, I mean, this is 
you know, another, this is almost another topic for an entire new discussion. But the way I see this is there are very few evil people. There are people that are totally misguided, that are totally brainwashed, that are, you know, that have just been fed bad ideas. But even more than that, I believe that this, this sort of global world that we live in where there are so many steps between the manager and the person on the ground. So you have, you know, you have the company and then you have 20, 30, 40 sort of steps in between and you're only responsible to the next step. And that's why someone in a, in a, in a big office million miles away from, from where the situation and exploitation is happening on the ground, only just deals with the next in line, who deals with the next in line and the next in line and, and doesn't actually fully ever really understand and appreciate the, the human toll, the environmental toll and all this sort of stuff because no one takes responsibility. You're only responsible for your, your little patch or your little, your little section. And, and you know, that, that's how bad things I believe in history and, and, and currently can happen because you just say, oh, I'm just following this order and then the next step and the next step and the next step and, and it just dilutes any sort of responsibility until there's none. That's why you start, I think you have to work two places. You have to start with children and educate them on what, on how things should be done. And then you have to go right to the top and start at the top and that's how things get, get done. Um, if Vladimir Putin is, re is remembered for anything good, it will be for establishing and maintaining a tiger preserve in far eastern Russia. Because that's something that personally interests him. Uh, and if he wanted to, he could stop pollution throughout Russia. But he won't do that. That's mm. an evil thing that he's not doing or that, he, that he's doing. But the tiger preserve in far east Russia is a good thing. How do you get it in the minds of certain leaders that it is more important to do things like that than cut down some more trees and put some more skins up on somebody's wall? Um, you start by educating them as children and hope it stays with them through their whole lives. You have to go to the top. You have to start at the top. That's why we have to replace Donald Trump in the United States. He's busy dismantling as a sideline environmental regulations. Put somebody in there who realizes that that's more important than cutting down another tree or mining for uranium at the Grand Canyon and terrible things like that. I don't know for sure how you do that. Religion doesn't do it anymore, that's for sure. Um, you hope you get the right person in there. That's, that's all you can do. People have to vote and in dictatorships, people have to make their voices heard. Yeah. And people have to be educated to make their voices heard. Yeah. We've just got to have faith that the work that you're doing, hopefully the work that I'm doing, contributes in a little way to generations down the track. That's the, um, and, 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 and that's sort of the common theme. You know, I've only just started this podcast. It's, it's you're, you're the fifth guest, but, you know, that's what I think is a great thing about speaking to people as yourself, that you're able to, you know, galvanizes me knowing that we're in the fight together. And um, you can do it on a person to person basis, too especially if you're traveling yeah i mean if you if you if you're if you're let's say in africa and you meet somebody who wants to sell you a leopard skin they know it's illegal but if instead of saying no i'm not interested 
you know, you try to explain a few things to them. Maybe they listen, maybe they don't, but at least you try. Yeah. Maybe the person goes back and they think about it and maybe they stop poaching leverage. Yeah. Uh, and it's not just, I was in a little town in the middle of the, the Namib desert on the way to a place called Susisle in Namibia. And there's one little spot, just a spot in the road there on the highway from uh, Wallfish Bay, a store that sells typical little convenience store. And the guy was boasting about how many leopards he had killed. And he wasn't even a, a sheep herder or cattle herder. And I tried to talk to him. And this is a uh, basically a white Afrikaner. You know, he's living, he's only he's a Namibian citizen. Explain to him why that was a bad thing, because people come to places like Namibia to see animals like leopards, to see charismatic species, never mind everything else. And I don't think I got through to him. He was immediately defensive and, you know, well, here's this typical American tourist telling me how to live. But maybe, maybe some of it stuck with him. Yeah. And maybe a month down the line or a year down the line or whatever, he just decided he should stop doing it. Yeah. You never know. Sometimes you plant a seed, you don't, you're not able to come back and see the tree. Yeah. Yeah. The results, but you try to plant the seed. Well, that's a, I think that's a beautiful way to, to finish up because it, it actually we've come a full circle because I'll bring you back to what you wrote to me for David Fideli <laughs> for trying. And that's, that's what we've been talking about for this whole discussion, I think. And, and, um, we can't do any more than do our very best and, 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 and try. So I thank you so much for, for this time. Um, if people are um, watching or listening and want to and don't know of your work, let's say, or want to, to sort of engage with, with, with your writing, where would be the best place to, to begin? What book or what novel or, yeah, what would you suggest? Well, for general information, I have a website, alandeanfoster.com. There's a Facebook page, Facebook slash Alan Foster. It's maintained by one of my publishers. You can go to Amazon or preferably your local bookstore and look up some of my titles. As far as what to begin with, uh, Midworld, for people who are particularly interested in ecology, that's a good book to start with. And... Um, I write many different kinds of science fiction and fantasy and nonfiction as well, uh, contemporary fiction. So I always tell people who are unfamiliar with my work, I have a half a dozen or so collections of short stories that have been published. And that's always a good place to start because if you don't like one story, you might like the next one. <laughs> no, no need to give titles. You can look them up online. Yeah. And, uh, I've been I've been on your website the last couple of days, and it's a pretty fascinating place to uh, to explore. It's all done with ancient HTML. Yeah, and probably probably should have been updated twenty years ago. But uh, there's only so many moments in the day. And I'm sure you've got more important and pressing things to do than updating your website. So um, it's been fantastic to to re-engage with you, and um, let me take the opportunity to to say thank you for um making a small gesture that made a huge impact to me so um keep trying that's what i'm going to do you too Dave. yeah okay thanks so much alan it's been a pleasure same to you okay bye-bye bye, -bye. bye.
Many thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, review it with five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen and subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode. And go to aliminalspace.earth to access all episodes available as both video and audio podcasts. But for now, many thanks again and see you next time in Aliminal Space. Thank you.